be open to being sent to tell the gospel that this great glorious God gives grace guilt taken away and we're sent to proclaim that to a world that's desperate for us Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Our scripture reading will be from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. I believe it's on page 1068 in your pew Bible. If you have your Bible, Please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen to God's Word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Verse 6, then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal that was in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Verse 8, Then I heard the vo voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I say September the 11th, 2001, what comes to mind? Or December 7th, 1941. In the year that King Uzziah died is how Isaiah starts chapter 6. And what Isaiah is doing is using a dateline. He's using a significant event to point to something that isn't good in the nation. During Isaiah's time, Uzziah was a stabilizing factor for the nation. He kept the wheels of industry and commerce going. Things were good. It was a Ronald Reagan type time for him. And now he's gone, he died, and the people are wondering, are we going to be okay? How are things going to turn out for us? 
the world is a big, scary place, and now he's gone, and things were good when he was here. We're not so sure about the future. So there's uncertainty, question, some fear. And this weekend, we're grilling burgers, perhaps going to the lake and the really, really spiritual people whom God loves more is here at First Pres on this holiday weekend. That's, that's you. It's good theology, I might add. And we're celebrating our independence as a nation, but in Israel, in Isaiah's time, the, the green egg grills were cold. The wheels on the Weber gas grills had cobwebs on them. They weren't celebrating. There was no fireworks downtown. It was a bad time, full of uncertainty and unpredictability. You see, people back then, and some of us here this morning, are seeing our worlds unravel and, and need hope because there doesn't seem to be much hope. Just politically, just one example, a recent U.S. News and World Report Gallup poll asked people their satisfaction with our, our two presidential candidates for the November general election, and it was the highest recorded negative reaction to two candidates ever recorded by Gallup. And that's just one little area. And against this backdrop of this sense of the world kind of coming apart and not sure and unraveling, Isaiah gives hope. And we're going to see it this morning in three movements. First, we're going to see how glory is displayed. Second, how grace is given. And third, how going is expected. Glory, grace, going. You can fall asleep now and you'll, you'll have the cliff notes for the rest of the time. First, we have this picture of the train of the robe of the Lord filling the temple and the Lord is high and lifted up on a throne. Why is that important or why is that significant? Well, for one, in the temple you didn't have thrones. That wasn't a part of the natural furnishings of a temple. It's like having um, uh, a throne, a big king's throne here. These chairs kind of look like it, but not really. You have, you have temple-type stuff. You have the altar for sacrifice and atonement. You had here, like, you had tables for the priest doing God's bidding, but you didn't have thrones. So, so what's Isaiah talking about there? He is saying in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of unraveling, God is on his throne. He's displaying visually the sense of God's sovereignty. There's a very real incredible display that God is holy. Seraphs are calling to each other in, in thunderous voices that shake the very doorposts of the temple. There's smoke rising from this altar of atonement. It's really a scene, friends, that just dazzles us. It, it overwhelms what you can even describe on a page or even say verbally. It, it doesn't do it justice. You have these seraphs, these winged creatures that 
that if you notice in the text, they have six wings. Well, they only use two to fly. Why the other four? The text says they cover their eyes and cover their feet. Why is that? There's a sense that when you come up against the brilliance of God, that there's got to be some covering. There's got to be some, some shrinking away because of the, the, the nature of who God is. It's not just business as usual. You've got to understand that here in the temples, something really big is happening for the, the doorposts to shake and the, the temple to shake, the, the thresholds is big. It, it may be, and this is maybe just a little glimpse of it. We don't live on a, a fault line where there's an earthquake, but that's kind of happening. But maybe a, a storm like thunder, loud worship, God's glory. And the people were saying, our man is gone. Are things going to be okay? And Isaiah gets his vision. It communicated to them and to us today, friends, that God's in control, that God cannot be outmaneuvered, that God cannot be overpowered, that God cannot be outsmarted, that God cannot be taken by surprise by the Ishmaelites in the Bible or by ISIS today, it doesn't matter. God controls everyone and everything. He reigns. Now, that doesn't mean that we, like Israel, don't think our world is coming apart from, from mass shootings at a nightclub in Orlando, was it three weeks ago, to Istanbul Airport last week, to to even this morning, I think I read that in a Bangladesh restaurant, suicide bombers and a Baghdad car bomb, 80 dead this morning. So whether it's globally in our world as we look at it in our own country or around the world, or whether it's in our worlds, if we zoom into our worlds, there's disease and there's disease divorce, and there's dysfunction, and there's depression, um, and there's parents and grandparents who are struggling with Alzheimer's, and there's things like driving privileges that are, are being sort of taken away, and there's a sense of independence that you lose with that in our worlds. I don't know what it's like in your world. This weekend, I received a phone call from some folks connected with the church and it was a family emergency and a particular mom, son in college said, someone told him that they suspect her son is involved in drugs and so she drove to him and took him to get drug tested and he tested positive for cocaine. It's only in your system three days to test positive. Her world fell apart. <laughs> what do you do with that? What Isaiah saw with all that, despite all that, is how one of my professors described how he would summarize the whole Old Testament in just three words, and it's simply this. Our 
God reigns. In your world that's unraveling, in your world that you couldn't see this coming, in your world where that doesn't happen to me, that happens to other people, friends, our God reigns. couple parentheses. Um, when we get this scene in Isaiah 6 um, of worship, the one thing that you're, you're struck with, if, if you read this and think about it, is that worship is, is loud. It's not Muzak at Macy's, elevator music. It's not tame. There's a sense of volume and decibel level that accompanies God's glory. And I don't, I don't know what that means as far as Betty just pulling out the stops and, and making that organ scream, but I do know that there's something big about God's presence. Secondly, there's a physical reaction of, of some description when we come into contact with God's glory and who he is. For Isaiah, he is literally on his face. Now, when I came in from the Ignite worship service, I didn't see many people lying in the aisles at God's glory. I think if we did that, we would probably be saying, man, there's a charismatic church across the town that you can probably check out, all right? But I do know that there's something physical that happens, however that's expressed, when you experience the glory and majesty of God. It's interesting in sporting events when the Cavaliers win or Clemson goes to national. I mean, we're chest bumping, we're up, whoa, you know, because there's a sense of excitement and, and goodness and bigness. And maybe when we come to worship, not so much so. Now, I'm not trying to engineer any type of reaction, but I am saying there's a certain amount of freedom to say when you come into contact with God, you may get a little weak need. There may be a sense of humbleness, or there should be in brokenness, and that may be expressed uh, in different ways that I think is appropriate and actually biblical. However you react, what we do see here is that you can't perceive the greatness of God without recognizing Oh, crud on yourself. There's a problem. It's what Isaiah did. When you, when you see the scene as Isaiah did, there's a sense of, whoa! Wow. W-H-O-A. Whoa! Look at this. And then the next Reaction is, whoa, W-O-E, I'm in trouble. There's this movement of seeing God's greatness and knowing instinctively, I'm undone. And that word in the original language is really hard to translate. There's a sense of, of utter emptiness, this sense of being overwhelmed is hard to translate, appropriately so. But the scene doesn't just stay there. You see, transcendence is transferred. The infinite 
becomes intimate. Look with me. You may have missed this. Look with me again at, at verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And, and what does he do with this? What does he do? With it, he touched my mouth. And what was the result? He says, it's touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Sins atoned for. You see the, the grace given here. The seraph doesn't strike him dead. What we see here is that God is not as the old Bette Midler song, watching us from a distance. No. No. God is with us right here, right now, whether we're celebrating or scared as a nation or as an individual here today. God's with you no matter what. What we see here is that God knows the worst, knew the worst about Israel, knew the worst about Isaiah, knows the worst about you, knows the worst about me, and still comes to be with us. Even though he's glorious, even though he's transcendent, even though he's high and lifted up, even though he reigns, even though he's sovereign. The overarching story, friend, of the Bible is grace. This march of intimacy, this coming down, where John describes Jesus as the Word, this, this God becoming flesh, having sinew and skin like us, and, and dwelling among us. One paraphrase says, the Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. How's this shown? What does the seraph do? Why is this needed? Because of God's glory and our woe-ness, something had to be done. It, it, it couldn't stay like that. You had to bridge this gap somehow, some way. And so that's why we have this smoke. That's why we have the altar. That's why we had animals that would be, be slain and would serve as a sacrifice for the sins of Isaiah who were unclean and the people who had unclean lips. That's how they did it back then. Today, we have the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus whom John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the people. That's us. Jesus did what no animal could fully and finally and completely do by his death and resurrection on the cross, bridging that distance between a holy God and a sinful people, us. That's good news. Isaiah sees these seraphs singing about God's holiness, and he knew he needed purification. He couldn't sing with them. It just wouldn't fit. It wouldn't be right. And so a hot coal touches his lips. Some of you who may be grill masters and who are real grill masters, you don't use gas grills. No, sir, you use charcoal, right? Why do you use charcoal? Why do you use the briquettes? 
So when you eat the meat, you won't get sick. <laughs> heat sterilizes. Heat cleanses things. Heat makes hamburger meat edible, right? Kind of the same idea here. The seraph is symbolically showing you've been made pure. God has made provision for you. And for Isaiah and for his people, for us today, because that's happened, we can now sing holy, holy, holy with integrity. Because it doesn't depend on us, it depends on what Christ has done. We can now join the seraphs in this glorious scene because our guilt is taken away, grace is given. Friends, we need grace this morning because we know we're guilty. We know we're undone. We know the thoughts we've had. We know how we are condemned by our past that we can't quite shake. We know that. In the midst of all that, God says, I make you holy. I am able to make you sing. I redo your undoneness. When your world is unraveling, I put it back together by grace. When you brush up, God says, against my glory, it's natural to fall down and to be undone. But I, friends, don't stay high and lifted up in the sky. I come to you. You don't stay low and undone on the ground. That's not the way it ends. I give you grace, and you get on your feet, and now you sing with sincerity and freedom, and the shame and the guilt that comes of, of what you've done is erased. It's done away with. Those tapes that you play in your head are muted. Those voices that are accused are silenced because, verse 7, your guilt's taken away, your sin is atoned for. Is that good news to you this morning? It is for three of you. Four. Glory displayed, grace given, going expected. You have this idea of, of, of majesty, mercy, and then of mission, okay? It doesn't end with grace being given and that's the end of the story. That's not the end of the movie where you see the outtakes and the bloopers as a credits roll. What happens next? And we, we end with this. What happens next? Look at verse 8. The grace given is a reason to go. Going is expected after grace is received. Verse 8. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, what? Here am I. Send me. God wasn't confused and really wondering, I don't know who I can send. Hmm, let's think about this. And Isaiah didn't have to check his calendar. He didn't have to clear it with the Mises. A natural reaction to being close to God's holiness is, oh no, woe is me. A natural reaction, the expected next step to grace being given 
here I am. I'm your man. I'm your woman. I'm your student. I'm your boy. I'm your girl. Please let me. It's expected. It's too big, too great not to share. God shows his glory. We go tell. It's the original show and tell. The progress of the gospel, majesty, mercy, mission, glory, grace, going. You, you tell good news, right? It, it's expected. God tells Isaiah, go tell. I don't know what your go is, but I do know if you're willing and available, God will use you. He'll send you. God will give you a go. God will summon you a, a sending. A team from the DR, Dominican Republic, just got back. I think you heard a bit about that earlier. They were sent. Where, where is God sending you? It, it may be maybe not to the DR across North America. It may be across the street. It may be to befriend or, or to be there for that widow who lost her husband eight years ago. It may be to minister or help out that single mom who has three kids and they're trying to get to soccer practice and hopefully stopping at the stop sign on Raleigh Smith and Black Road. Whatever it is, what is that for you? What is that thing that, that you can't quite shake, that need that, that you can fill, that passion that just won't go away? I, I know it's there. I've talked with some of you. Make your life significant. Be sent. Go for this glorious gospel. And Israel's woeness and their undoneness and their sin God embraced a people for himself. He still does that today. That's us. That's you. That's me. Do you believe that this morning? This week, be open to being sent to tell the gospel that this great, glorious God gives grace guilt taken away, and we're sent to proclaim that to a world that's desperate for us. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your greatness, your transcendence being transferred, your infiniteness coming down in an intimate way, seeing fully and finally in Jesus Christ. May we know of grace given to us this morning. And may we go proclaiming and lifting high the cross. This we pray in his name. Amen. Hargrove, and I'm the Ignite Worship Service Pastor here at First Presbyterian Church. And at Ignite, we like to do four things. We call them the four C's. One, we want to be Christ-centered and Christ-focused. Secondly, we want to build community. That means we connect with each other in the service as well as outside the service. 
third, we want to celebrate what God is doing among us. And fourth, we want to be connectional, connecting the Bible to everyday life as we go live, work, play, and stay in this community. So come at 1045 on Sundays to experience at night and see what God is doing with and among us.